I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and Sirius XM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and Sirius XM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. One really simple trick to, you know, work on this as writers is I read everything aloud that I write. And if I'm reading something aloud and I'm bored with something I've just written, obviously the reader will be too. And so then I start cutting that stuff. That's Sarah Vowell. And it's pretty hard to find her boring, whether she's writing history from a strange angle, like writing about a vacation she took visiting the sites of famous assassinations, or observing our lives through the prism of wit on NPR's This American Life. Or providing the voice for an animated film like The Incredibles. She's one of a kind. Sarah, I'm so glad to be talking to you because, you know, we talk mostly about relating and communicating on this podcast. And you do a lot of communicating. You, you, you write, you speak, you act, and you write in different media. I'm really curious. Do you have a theory of communication that guides you, some kind of way you have of thinking about how you communicate that you kind of apply to various kinds of communication? No. Can I go home? Um, No. Uh, (laughs) I mean, I am a nonfiction writer, and mostly I write about American history. So generally, the way I talk about something is demanded by the subject matter. So that's why a lot of times my tone is all over the place depending on what I'm talking about. You know, if if, um, a woman's husband was just murdered, my tone can be kind of morose. And uh, sometimes, I don't know, sometimes things strike me as funny. But generally, it's just always the subject matter to me that dictates how I talk about something. I will say, though... Um, I studied to be an art historian, which means um, in graduate school, I had to read a lot of really terrible writing. And the other thing I would say that I always try for is clarity. Um, That's really important to me. So, you know. Well, that's really right up our alley because we're called clear and vivid. Oh, good. Clarity. Clarity Yeah, I was pandering. I was pandering. You pander away, that's fine. But I, I get the impression you have more of a theory about communicating than comes to mind consciously because on the one hand, you you seem to be interested in staying interested yourself in what you're writing about. But I also get the impression that it matters to you what the other person who's reading it or listening to it is going through. Is that right? That's good. So I've fooled you. I mean, mostly I'm my own audience and I'm really hard on myself. So I always feel like if 
If I'm semi-happy with something, then that's probably good. I will say I do have a kind of structure in my storytelling, and generally my policy is start weird, end sad. Wait, wait, explain that. That's <laughs> That sounds amazing. What do you mean? I, I would start weird. I never want a topic sentence to be my first sentence. Usually I want to sort of grab the reader and say, so the reader thinks, um, boy, I don't know where she's going with this. And that way mm-hmm. to keep them, you know, on the hook a little bit. And then I don't really like happy endings. I always think an ending should be plaintive and thoughtful and a little bit sad. So like when I wrote a book about presidential assassinations, it was about um, historic sites having to do with presidential assassinations. So I traveled around to sites having to do with Lincoln and Garfield and McKinley. And the book ends with me um, walking past Union Square in New York City and walking by the Gandhi statue. And I think the last line of the book is, they shot him too. So mm. I don't know if that's a good ending, but that's how that story ended. Well, it, it kind of opens my eyes to the idea that no matter how hard we try, we haven't come up with a surefire formula yet to deal with our own kind of violent humanity. Well, and also even more disturbing is that the people who have the best, most uh, loving ideas tend to be executed or assassinated or discouraged. So do you think that in, in your writing you tackle that or do you just leave just leave us feeling d- disappointed about it. No, I, I mean, I think that was definitely one of the themes. I mean, one of the things that made me interested about writing about the Lincoln assassination is is um, Lincoln's second inaugural address, which is my favorite American political speech. And it's, you know, the one at the end of the Civil War. And he's talking about how the country must come together and we should bind up the nation's wounds And it's the one with the phrase, with malice toward none. And it's kind of this call to come back together and to take care of the widows and the orphans. And and, uh, Booth was there at the Capitol listening to the speech. He's, He's in Alexander Gardner's photograph of Lincoln reading that speech. And the idea that someone could be there listening to this speech that's about, you know, repairing our national community and, you know, a few weeks later, shoot the person who gave that speech. Um, I wanted to dig into that because it didn't make sense to me. It's a powerful picture you paint of it, of standing this like it's like a scene from a movie. When you range through the history of, say, that or Lafayette, who you've also written about, I can hear that you range over a great deal of detail, and yet you're looking for clarity, and sometimes too much detail too soon is the, is the opposition to clarity. How do you know what to leave out? Oh, yeah. How do you decide? Well, let's see. I have two things to say about that. Detail is definitely my bread and butter. I mean, one reason I write about historic sites and historic artifacts 
I think more than anything is because um, usually a thing or a place can kind of bring something really into focus. Like um, like when President Garfield was um, assassinated, he did not die right away, and he kind of languished in bed for a few weeks and just wasted away. And if you go to his farm in Ohio, you can see his death mask. He was a very, you know, big guy, kind of portly, and his death mask is very gaunt. So in that mask, you can see what his wife and his family went through watching him die, and it must have been horrific. So that thing brings him back to life, and that's always my goal, you know, to bring these dead people back to life. Right. There's there's nothing like detail to put you in the place. But if you have too many details... Yeah, that's the, that's the... I think that's why a lot of people don't like to read a lot of history books, because a lot of more traditional history books than mine. Sometimes I think the historian feels like, well, I went through all this pain to learn all this stuff, and you, you the reader, need to share my pain. And that is not— <laughs> You need to suffer. If I suffered, you have to, too. Yeah. I mean, one one really simple trick to, you know, work on this as writers is I read everything aloud that I write. And if I'm reading something aloud and I'm bored with something I've just written, obviously the reader will be, too. And so then I start cutting that stuff. So you you actually do what I was talking about earlier, which uh, which I advocate and practice you have your way of doing it, which is to keep the reader in mind. You become the reader, and if you get bored with it, then it goes, right? Or you rewrite it, or what? What? How do you handle it when you get bored with it? At this point, I've been doing it long enough. I'm not married to anything I write, and I just start cutting. Another thing I do is I call my twin sister, who has a limited interest in some of this stuff, and um, like when I <laughs> when I was writing about the Battle of Brandywine, which... It's actually a difficult battle to describe because a lot's going on all over the place in this one, you know, river valley in Pennsylvania. So sometimes I just call my twin sister and I ask, are you interested in this guy's make of cannon or this guy's make of musket? And, you know, and just by asking the question, obviously, she says no. So sometimes um, I run things by her. Like, that's not interesting to you, is it? And she'll say no. For me, that raises an interesting question of sometimes I think there are details that aren't directly related to the big story, but they help get you to the big story. And sometimes they don't. For instance, so many books or paragraphs start with, it was a cold February day when so-and-so walked into the federal building. If that doesn't matter, that it was a cold February day to the story, I'd rather not hear about it. But if later the coldness and the early month that it is really is material to something that happens later in the story, then, I, then I, I'm grateful for its having been included. Is that the kind of a detail that you would leave out? Or, do you, or do you, does, are you okay with that kind of detail? I mean, I— have a thing for weather, but I would say, I think, well, I started out as a writer. I did a lot of different kinds of writing. And one of the things I did, I was a reporter and I was a radio reporter. And when I would go report a story back to my sister again, whatever, you know, if I'm calling my sister from a hotel room, whatever I told my sister about what happened during that day's reporting, that usually ended up in the story. So, 
Um, I don't know how that would apply to other people, but the things you find yourself telling the people you care about, those generally are worth putting in. Um, I like writing, but what I really love is editing. And so just rewriting and rewriting, which also means just cutting things down. I love editing too. I, I love letting go of something that I thought was really interesting the first time I put it down. And I love that motion where if it's on paper, where I take a pencil and just cross off the whole page. Oh, um, yeah. I love first, that too. I, I remember collaborating with somebody once and the look on his face of horror when he saw me take the pencil to the page. Well, I'll never forget that. But it gives you a sense of power and freedom at the same time Yeah, to be able to say, that was good, but not good, not for this. I mean, it depends on the format, too, because, uh, like, I write uh, op-eds for the New York Times, and um, I find a lot of times I'll write something and there'll be a good joke, but I only have a limited amount of space, and maybe the Secretary of State is going to read this thing. And so I'll cut out a joke that's good writing to get in an idea in case the Secretary of the Interior is reading so it. So it sounds like the luckiest thing you can do is find yourself writing an idea that's also a good joke. Yeah, if you can think of a good idea that can be expressed in a good joke, that is the best way to express something, and usually the quickest. Like, remember that 2000 presidential election and that was a whole thing where the Supreme Court decided who the president was and the guy who won the popular vote didn't become the president. And it was just a big crisis in the country. And um, I went to George W. Bush's inauguration in January of 2001. And I said I went there to protest, but really I just stood there on the mall crying, you know. And um, there was this moment when the ceremony was over and I was looking at the people who were on the dais, and um, one of the people up there was Bob Dole. And I said, oh, I've, I have a soft spot for Bob Dole now because he symbolizes a simpler, more innocent time in America when you could lose the presidential election and, like, not actually become the president. <laughs> so that was a very quick way to sum up all of that rancor. What about the difference between telling a story that people are going to read and telling one that people are going to listen to? There's, there's supposed to be a big difference between the two. Do you see the difference? Do you yes. write differently? Yes, for sure. Well, how, how would you describe that? It's one reason I stopped writing for radio because um, basically a radio listener, and I, I am one myself, but they're kind of like a dog, you know. <laughs> I've heard you say that. What, what do you mean? In what way are we like dogs when we listen to the they're radio? They're just like, oh, the dryer went off or, oh, no, the car in front of me, just the brake lights went on. I got to pay attention to this. So they're, they're constantly like a dog chasing a squirrel or something. And so you have to keep things... You have to keep the momentum going. You have to keep to the, like, basics. You have to, you know, go fast. You can't luxuriate in a bunch of abstract details or ideas. It, it's much more narrative, I think. And I think that's one reason people like it. But for me, maybe coming from an academic background, 
I I like I like the details and I like tangents. When I worked on This American Life, um, which is a very traditionally narrative show, um, Ira Glass and I, who he was the host of the show, but also my editor, we would have these um, we would have these negotiations for what I call shenanigans, where it was just some weird cool thing I wanted in the story that didn't help move the story forward. It was just something I wanted to say. And, you know, he was always trying to, like, minimize my shenanigans. And he would be like, you just had a shenanigan 20 seconds ago. We can't have two shenanigans in a row. You know, we had a... Also, I mean, you're bound by the clock in radio. Whereas in a book, I get to decide how long it is. So... I definitely like all the little um, tangents. Like when I was working on the Lafayette book, it was not so much, it was a little bit of the story, but when I went to um, the Brandywine Valley and where the Battle of Brandywine was, there was a reenactment happening and I stumbled into the shake, the uh, Quaker meeting house, which was part of the battle spilled out onto their grounds. And um, because there was a big reenactment happening, the Quakers from that meeting house were all sitting there just waiting for unsuspecting history buffs to happen by. And uh, they just, you know, pounced on me and and um, condemned the fact that Americans see history as the history of war. And I mean, I didn't, I could very well have not included that in the book, but I actually thought they had some good points. And I thought they were interesting in the fact that this battle still had meaning to them more than 200 years later was fascinating to me. And um, part of what I write about isn't just history, but how history is remembered. So, of course, I have a big tangent with those Quakers. And um, I think a traditional historian probably would not have included that. Mm. But you're the one learning the story, and you can either tell the story totally objectively without your own presence in the story, but it doesn't it become a more human story? It seems to me it becomes a slightly more human story if you see how it affected you. You're reminding me of the book you did about the Trail of Tears, and your own heritage includes ancestry mm-hmm. uh, that's Cherokee, right? Am yes. I right about that? So how could you how could you possibly tell that story of following the Trail of Tears without including your own reaction to, to to the places you went to and the things you learned, things you may not have known before? That was actually the first like real story I ever wrote that was about American history, and I think because my family had a part in that story, it just did not occur to me to tell that story um, in the third person. And Mm. it's also just how I see the history of the country. I don't see it as divorced from me and my family. You know, I have uh, Confederate soldiers in my family and, um, oh, Depression people and Pretty Boy Floyd showed up one time and stuff like that. So I always saw history as something that happened to people like me and my relatives, not as something separate that happened to James Madison. Sarah got me interested in the flaws some of our historical figures have, even the heroes. I ask her about that right after we come back from this short break. 
I'm Roman Mars, host of 99% Invisible. I'm excited to be teaming up with Lexus GX and SiriusXM on some very special 99PI episodes. We're heading to some of the cities in the U.S. that have special meaning for me and exploring the ways that these cities marry form and function. To learn more about the Lexus GX and SiriusXM and Lexus vehicles, visit Lexus.com slash GX and SiriusXM.com slash Lexus Trial. The all-new Lexus GX. Live up to it. Check out the 99% Invisible feed now and listen to these special episodes. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Sarah Vowell. You don't mind, or do you even, in fact, look for behavior that's not always laudable among the great historical figures you write about. And I mean, they, 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 they make mistakes like regular humans. Yeah. I mean, that's when they come alive is when you can identify with them. Like um, working on that Lafayette book, most of the Revolutionary War, George Washington is about to get fired. Like, you know, he's mm. engaged in a lot of on-the-job training as a general, and he's messing up a lot. And a lot of his so-called friends want to dump him throughout the war. And um, I could totally identify with that. You know, <laughs> like, I, I've been a journalist <laughs> for a quarter of a Why, century. Why, were you You're, almost dumped from one of your jobs? Well, yeah, I've been fired so many times. I mean, just the idea that you know, the indispensable man was always about to get fired. That was the first time I ever kind of had a bead on him, I think, as a person. So, and some of the flaws are just so much, they're as interesting as, you know, the bright spots, I think. But then there's the the flip side is also a potential problem, which is I think um, lately I've noticed because I speak at a lot of colleges um, a lot of younger students are more than happy to um, discuss our founders' many terrible flaws, especially regarding slavery, and they're less and less willing to talk up the highlights, you know? Um, mm -hmm. I had a student mm -hmm. at MIT last fall, and I was talking about Washington's commitment to the Bill of Rights and specifically to religious freedom, and even more specifically about um, his letter to the Newport Jews and um, about how the, the First Amendment means, he said, we're done with tolerance. That means one group is, you know, humoring another. Things are equal now. And this is, an, this is a big moment in the history of civil rights in the world. And a student um, started weeping and made a scene and she said it was just too painful for her to hear someone saying something nice about a slave owner. And mm. 
first of all, that really ruined the evening. <laughs> then secondly, I was like, this is America. You know, you've got to be able to deal with this stuff. And you need to hold more than one idea in your head. And, you know, I, I don't know what to tell her, but it, it's, it's, it's haunting me that night. Do you think it's part of the age-old response of young people to want to fix everything right away and take do a revolution and turn everything upside down and everything will be better and, and perfect then? That's probably part of it. I think some of it is, I don't know about you, but as I get older, I have more regrets about my own personal behavior. You know, I, I, I can't mm. throw any stuff. I mean, I've never owned a slave, but, you know, I could have been nicer to my mom a few times or. Or a waiter. Right. I mean, I, we all have, we all have people who play certain parts in our lives. I look at it that way, that this guy is playing the part of a waiter today and I, I I'm, I'm grateful for it. I also want him to play the part. Uh-huh. not become my best friend. Now, this is maybe a tangent, but so sometimes when I'm watching- Oh, is this going to be, is this a shenanigan? <laughs> this is a shenanigan. So I'm asking you as an actor. Um, I used to watch a lot of late night talk shows, especially like David Letterman. And you know, um, you know how David Letterman would make people nervous. And a lot of actors would be on and they'd be like, oh, I'm so nervous. And I always thought, sitting at home, you're an actor. Why don't you just act confident? <laughs> yeah. Like, is that possible? My friend Ann Bancroft uh, would uh, would play tennis uh, uh, often with just that in mind. And she'd say, I did okay today because I acted like I was a good tennis player. And <laughs> it actually can have an effect on you. Yeah. So spread that around amongst your fellows. So I can see why these shenanigans are a problem because I w- was following what you were saying and I had something I wanted to ask you about and now I can't remember it at all. Yeah. So now I have to come in from left field. But what reminds me is somebody told me that they heard that you said that you like radio because you like the musical interludes. Oh, yeah. Because if you want, we'll, we'll, we'll play one now if you want to get started <laughs> on it. One thing, I, I mean, I spend most of my life uh, as a writer writing transitions from one paragraph to the next. I'm kind of obsessed with that. So you don't have to go to that trouble with a musical interview. No, you just, you know, like bring up the trumpets and then move on to the next thing. So what's the difference for you when you write something that you know you're going to speak and people are going to hear it, they're going to be processing it differently, leaving out the part that they are distractible like dogs are. But the way they process what you say, it's one thing at a time. They don't get a chance to go back and look at the beginning of the paragraph or the sentence. You've got to make it clear to them right now, moment by moment. How do you, is that one of the major differences between reading for the eye and reading for the ear? Yeah, for sure. If you looked at the copies of my books that I take on book tour, um, they're, they're completely marked up. And, um, or there'll be like pieces of tape you know, just closing off whole sections of the book, and I'll uh, I'll just cut out all the extraneous stuff. I'll just keep on point. Things are way more action-packed or funnier. Okay, I'm going to ask you something that is going to come in a little bit from left field, so I'm going to do a musical interlude, and I'll be right back. Great. I hope Anne Bancroft is playing tennis in this one. Here's, here's what I have to ask you. 
what role does empathy play in your writing? Do you, do you, do you feel you have empathy for the historical figures you write about regardless of what they might have done wrong? Uh, or even if you, like, for instance, the, the people who assassinated the presidents, were you able to empathize your way into an understanding of what drove them so you could write about them more deeply? I think empathy is absolutely key. And it this is kind of, I think, an actor's question because you guys, when you play villains, you can't think of that villain as a villain, right? Usually. Right, absolutely. Yeah, so, not, never. I definitely, this becomes more and more important to me as I get older. I mean, one thing, I find empathy is way more educational because one of the reasons to read history is to figure out why did that happen? So um, like when I was writing about the history of Americans taking over Hawaii, there were these missionaries who went to Hawaii and it was their children and grandchildren who overthrew the Hawaiian queen and turned Hawaii over to the United States. And in Hawaii, especially amongst native Hawaiians, those people are vilified. And, um, you know, rightfully so by the end of 19th century, they owned almost all the land, and the natives owned almost nothing. And so it's it's pretty contentious there still. But when I was doing my research, I found this letter from the missionary headquarters in Boston to the missionaries in Hawaii who had been there for a generation. And, some, and they had, you know, raised their families there. Their children knew no other place. And the headquarters in Boston sends the, the missionaries this letter saying, we're cutting you off. After decades of their support, they're just saying, we're not sending you any more money. So these people are just marooned there, and they have to make a living. And so they live in this place with a 365-day growing season. So they start buying and acquiring more and more land, and they start the sugar plantations that completely transformed Hawaii. And that is the sticking point um, in Hawaiian history and a source of great hatred. And I understand that. But I also understand they knew no other home. They needed to feed their children. What are they going to do? And so the source of this thing that is, you know, an ongoing painful realization is basic human nature. They they were there. They needed to make a living. It's easy to grow stuff. And um, that's maybe not the most exciting example, but it kind of explains that history in a way that it's not like this evil premeditated series of events. It's just people dealing with the circumstances at hand and trying their best to feed their children. And so... Mm. It's not as good of a story as dastardly white people, but it's more true and understandable, I think. If that infuses your writing, I'm wondering if you suspect that an empathic look at the people you write about is in some way beneficial to the reader because they don't just hear about what happened as a list of bad things but they get a human perspective of, about uh, what was behind those bad things. Right. Absolutely. I mean, and the other, and the flip side is people who are just like the great heroes of history, like Lafayette is a good example. I mean, he was a teenager when he came to volunteer with George Washington's army and he abandoned his pregnant teenage wife in France. I mean, 
I'm Boy, not cool wow. with that. <laughs> you know, like I, I'm not on board with that. Well, 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 he 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 did it. He did it for the glory, or for what? glory. That doesn't sound good, especially nowadays. But on the other hand, on the other other hand, um, his quest for glory was very practical for the Americans because all he wanted to do was fight and. You know, much of Washington's army was constantly deserting like crazy. And here was this French kid who just, because he wants glory, he's always in there. He's always fighting. He's, you know, he leaves his, you know, hospital bed out after being wounded and wraps his leg in a blanket to run back to the front because he wants glory. But the practical effect of that is Washington has a general he can count on. Like, mm. nothing is ever one thing to me. And what about the other side of him? The, 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 the young woman in your, at, at your talk who was crying because you, you, were, you were showing admiration for somebody who had owned slaves. How do you work in that, uh, that failing? Is it, do, you, do you deal with the fact that it's a historical fact that people did that then? What, what, what do you, how do you do, deal I mean, with it? I'm still working on that. It's kind of a fool's errand. <laughs> I mean, you know, like trying to speak to his greater legacy while never letting him off the hook for his worst. That's a real can of worms. I mean, that's where I live, but I don't know. Has anyone figured that out yet? Not that I know of. We're at a moment now where the rage against depraved behavior against women is now finally surfacing, and thank God that it's, and it is, but we're in a moment where everyone is facing, to, to a great extent, what you're talking about. How much do you allow for the way things were at one time? And when you talk about somebody having been okay in other respects, but not okay in that respect. Yeah, it's a real, it's really tricky. I mean, that same week when um, the student cried, um, when I made the student cry at MIT, this was at MIT, by the way. Who knew they could cry? Um, <laughs> uh, there were there was an they have AC a machine that does it for them. Yeah, there was an ACLU attorney who was uh, at the College of William and Mary, which is Thomas Jefferson's alma mater, and I believe she was there to advise the students on their civil rights regarding protest. But um, some students of the school basically drowned out her event and it had to get, get canceled and they were yelling things like um ACLU you'd represent Hitler too um and mm. which i mean this isn't going to sound good but I, I mean i would hope so like there i believe in freedom of speech you either believe in freedom of speech or you don't unless a culture's most repugnant nitwits are allowed to say what they think no one is free and um, I think that's not exactly a universal value in this country anymore, especially among young people. Um, people care more about whether someone's uh, feelings get hurt. And I understand that, but it's, it's all really tricky right now. It makes public speaking really tricky, I think. It's one reason I really love print. You can really just marshal your arguments and decide what you want to say and just polish them up, you know. I mean, I will say this, like, I mean, when you were talking about the whole point of what you're doing is communication, which I assume 
is about establishing community in part. Um, I'm also a big fan of difference. Like, that is the beauty of this country. And I think we beat ourselves up too much about our differences and instead of celebrating them. Um, I've been to a lot of countries where if I have a question for my tour guide, I have to whisper it because they could get in trouble <laughs> if I say it in front of the army officer standing guard next to us, you know. And yeah. the absolute freedom we have in this country to disagree with one another is not anything I take for granted. And I mean, when I wrote about Lafayette, I ended that book not so much writing about him, but about Lafayette Square in Washington, D.C., across from the White House, which is where a lot of protests are, just everyday protests. And not just because it's across from the White House, it's where Americans yell at the president. And, um, you know, George H.W. Bush was always complaining about the drums, the drums interrupting his dinner from the protesters across the street, you know. Um, mm. But it's also where people who can't protest in their countries, go to protest their leaders who are visiting Washington, D.C. You know, like that's where mm. the Tibetans protest the Chinese president. Um, and, you know, one day it'll be the Tea Party and the next day it'll be the Tibetans and everyone has a right. All they need is a permit from the National Park Service. And, like, there was a famous incident in the 80s when the KKK staged a protest there and, you know, they got a permit and there were just a handful of idiots who show up and then, you know, hundreds and hundreds of counter-protesters. Like, that's how this country works. Like, the idiots get to hold up their stupid signs and everyone else swarms them with their signs, you know. And these differences... I'm proud of. Well, I think you've sort of established a uh, theory of communication that you operate under, even though you didn't you didn't uh, start out thinking you did. This you you care about what the the reader or the listener is going through. You read it out loud. You become the listener or reader. You you empathize with the uh, people you're writing about, and you seem to hope that that'll have an effect on the reader, so that they can enter into the experience with some empathy too. And a bunch of other things you've said that you, you seem to be your guiding principles, but you seem to have a more improvisatory experience of them. You don't you don't work under, as far as I can tell, you don't work under a rubric. You you. If it's boring to you, you take it out. Oh, that's why the transition is my friend. Because if you look at my books, just one thing leads to another. But because of the transition, things do lead to one another. But if you pull back, <laughs> right. you know. A necklace is just a box of pearls that'll roll off the table, if except they've got this connective tissue of the thread linking them, which is which is really the transition, the, the, the thing that holds things in place one to another. It's the most important part of a necklace. I like and that. And it's the most important. Now, yeah, what it was feels some... good. I just made this up. It's not, I'm, I'm going to say this again someplace. Yeah, you should. Um, so, yeah. Now, what was Anne Bancroft really like? <laughs> Here comes a shenanigan. 
she was a close friend, and uh, I remembered when I spoke at her funeral how sweet and kind she was with my children when they were small and had a had her palm filled with seashells and was showing them to them and going over the differences in the seashells with them. She entered into total connection with them. One of her great abilities as an actress was to relate to the other actor. And she related to my children, our children, the same way. And that's really what this series of conversations is about, and you played right into it so nicely, which is that you can take the sense of relating and not only relate to your reader, but help your reader relate to people and things that they might not otherwise relate to by the way you enter into it with a certain sensitivity and understanding that you're talking about real people and not monuments. And you played into my hands by talking about your clearly missed departed friend. You have ended sad. Ah, I did, didn't I? Yeah, that's good. Okay, before we really end, we do something on this uh, podcast that uh, I hope you'll be willing to take part in. We, We have seven quick questions that invite seven quick answers, and they're sort of vaguely related to communicating. Okay. Are, you, are you game for them? Sure. Okay, here's the first one. What do you wish you really understood? I wish I understood evil. I wish everybody could see the intense concentration on your face as you were thinking of what you really wish you understood. That was interesting. I also want to know what happened to the lost colony of Roanoke. You wish you, wish you understood that too. Yeah. You only you, you only get a chance at one. I'm sorry. Okay. I'm greedy. <laughs> number two, number two. What do you wish other people understood about you? I mean, well. Hmm. What's the strangest question anyone has ever asked you? Hmm. I remember one time I was talking to a some students in Germany, in Weimar. This was right after the wall came down. And I was talking about my Cherokee background. And one of the students said, why are you talking about this? All the American Indians died. And I just said, no, they didn't. <laughs> and they said, yes, they did. And it was an impasse. Wow. Well, you got to pass out your book. Mm-hmm. Okay, number four, how do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, um, my friend Ben taught me this. If you're at a party and you have a drink in your hand, drink <sighs> it all down, and um, and if there are just ice cubes left, you say, I need to go dump this out. <laughs> okay, is there anyone for whom you just f- cannot feel empathy? I don't think so. I mean, I would like to think not. I mean... Even our our president, who, you know, he's kind of a counterproductive figure, I find. Like, as someone who I've been uh, working at home on, you know, I've been a freelancer for over a quarter of a century. I sometimes have a lot of empathy with him because, you know, he ran his own company. He was basically working at home all those years, and he's forced into the White House where he has to deal with, you know— a whole employment structure and laws and rules and, you know, 
answering to the Congress and the electorate. And sometimes I, um, as just as someone who hasn't worked in a real office for so long, sometimes I, I have empathy for his lack of uh, experience at working for a few hundred million people. Okay, number six. How do you like to deliver bad news, in person, on the phone, or by carrier pigeon? This is, doesn't apply to bad news, but I'm always telling my sister this. When you have sort of bad news, you start with, everyone's okay, and then mm-hmm. you say what you're going to say. Except everyone's okay, except for Uncle Bill, who's right. dead. Well, what do you <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, how do you handle that? Yeah, hmm, how do you? Uh I think you just come out with it. No pussyfooting around. And and I, I don't like and when someone dies, I like it when someone uses the word died, you know, like And not passed on. Yes. Like yeah, he I feel died. the same way. I think just it, um euphemisms do not help things. They make them a little worse, I think. Okay, the last question. What if anything would make you end a friendship? <sighs> I mean, I have ended some friendships, and it's usually a um, an ongoing lack of kindness and honor. Well, I had a good time talking with you, Sarah. Thank you for thank you so much. And you you went through a snowstorm to get to the studio That's to talk right. to, to me today. I was delighted Absolutely. to talk to you. That's great. Thanks so much. Thank you. This has been clear and vivid. At least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. Sarah Bowell is the New York Times bestselling author of seven nonfiction books on American history and culture. Most recent book is entitled Lafayette in the Somewhat United States. Many of you may recognize Sarah as the voice of Violet in the Pixar animated series The Incredibles and as a contributor to the public radio show This American Life from 1996 to 2008, where she produced numerous commentaries and documentaries and toured the country in many of the program's shows. In addition to her books, Sarah is a contributing op-ed writer for The New York Times. This episode was produced by Graham Chedd with help from our associate producer, Sarah Chase. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula. Our tech guru is Allison Costin. Our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Michael Tomasello. His fascinating experiments comparing human toddlers and our primate cousins, such as chimpanzees, are revealing how human babies 
can just barely wait to start connecting and communicating. I've had over the years all of my colleagues and, and students who've had babies, and I just say, you know, nine-month revolution, wait for the nine-month revolution. And between nine and 12 months of age, it's like clockwork. They, they start pointing um, and holding things up and showing them, which chimps don't do either. Just like, just like picking up a toy and holding it up in the air and showing it, um, just to share attention to it. Exploring what it means to be human. Michael Tomasello, next time on Clear and Vivid. To listen to these conversations, subscribe for free on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.